Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Yeager. And I'm Lisa Carrico. We're program directors for Missouri Humanities. And we're so excited to bring you our latest episode of Eat, Think, and Be Merry. This podcast is part of our 2022 signature series. And throughout this year, we'll feature food thinkers and other special guests with exciting, inspiring, and downright delicious stories as we consider the role food plays in shaping our society, how it connects us to each other, to our own pasts and identities, and to the world around us. We invite you to feed your mind and join us around the table as we host conversations that explore Missouri's foodways and edible history to celebrate the breadth and depth of Missouri's cultural heritage, natural environment, and the relationship between food and the human experience. Hey everyone, welcome to our latest episode of the Eat, Think, and Be Merry podcast. I'm really excited to introduce this conversation as it was truly inspiring and intriguing. Lisa, I probably shouldn't admit this because I really think all of our episodes so far have been wonderful, but this one may be topping my list as one of my favorites. Well, I can't blame you. Our guest for this episode is Chef Nephi Craig an enrolled member of the White Mountain Apache Tribe. Nephi was our guest chef for the 2022 Hunt Fish Gather program, which took place on November 3rd and 4th at Washington University in St. Louis. Caitlin, can you share more about Hunt Fish Gather and Chef Nephi's role in the program? Gladly. The Hunt Fish Gather program was created by the Catherine M. Booter Center for American Indian Studies at Washington University and its students in collaboration with Wash U Dining Services in 2013. Historically, this program created an educational opportunity for Washington University and the local community, focused on an indigenous model of health and wellness by incorporating traditional native foods and decolonizing the westernized food system here in the United States. Native people have always had an intimate relationship with the natural world, as evidenced by their cultural traditions, histories, and languages, and this program aims to bring that to light. It really is a worthwhile and important program, and one that offers so much valuable information and perspective to its audience. Missouri Humanities has sponsored and partnered on the Hunt Fish Gather program in the past, but a little more indirectly. So when we started planning our signature series for this year, we knew it was imperative to include programming that featured indigenous foodways. And because we've been so familiar with the wonderful work of the Booter Center, it only made sense to approach them to help us accomplish that goal. At that time, it had been a couple years since the Booter Center had hosted a hunt, fish, and gather event due to the pandemic, so we were excited to be a partner on this year's program. Now, I have to give a massive shout out to the team at the Booter Center, especially their community projects coordinator, Eric Pinto, and program coordinator, Lynn Mitchell. It was truly a joy to work with both of them on this event, and particularly to be privy to all of Eric's adventures about harvesting and storing lots and lots of pawpaw in preparation for the dinner and sourcing so many ingredients that really can be found in your backyard. It links really well to the fall foraging we talked about in our last podcast episode. 
Anyway, Eric, Lynn, and the rest of the Booter Center team, thank you for the opportunity and privilege of working with you and for all you did for Huntfish Gather this year. I second that wholeheartedly. And I love that we brought in Chef Nephi in particular for this year's program because he was the featured chef for the first Huntfish Gather dinner almost 10 years ago. He has such an awe-inspiring story as well. He has 24 years of culinary experience and is the founder of the Native American Culinary Association, a network dedicated to the research, refinement, and development of Native American cuisine. Craig provides training, workshops, and lecture sessions on Native American cuisine to schools, restaurants, and tribal entities across America and abroad. Chef Nephi is also an advanced certified relapse prevention specialist and behavioral health technician and is currently serving as the Nutritional Recovery Program Coordinator at the Rainbow Treatment Center and is executive chef of Cafe Gojo on the White Mountain Apache Reservation in Arizona. He's a pioneer in the development of restorative indigenous food practices, a term critical for social recovery and indigenous resurgence during an age of fast food and disease. His background and work are truly remarkable. I really hope everyone enjoys the conversation as much as I did. Welcome to Missouri and to our Eat, Think, and Be Merry podcast. We're really grateful that you took time out of a very busy schedule here in St. Louis to record with us. So thanks for being here. Um, so I want to start a little bit with your background, of course, um, and what inspired you to pursue a career in the culinary world and then, of course, take one step further to focus on Native American indigenous cuisine. I'm very happy to be here to be returning to uh, Wash U to work with the Booter Center for uh, Hunt, Fish, and Gather again. Uh, it's been many years. Eric was telling me it was like 2013. I was like, oh my gosh, it's almost 10 years later, you know? So uh, time flies and the work hasn't stopped. Um, so I'm happy to be back. Um, <clears throat> my, um, my professional cooking life, it spans, uh, it's going to be 25 years this year. And um, it seems like uh, it's, I'm still at the beginning. Uh, the native food world is so vast that there's always something new. Um, so I think what I kind of try to do is just kind of um, hone in and work on developing my, my cooking style, my therapeutic style, and my clinical skills in my community. Um, so that's kind of what I do now. Uh, to to kind of answer that question of how I got into it, I think uh, cooking just started out as something that uh, was a hobby when I was young. I was always uh, cooking and baking with my mom. Uh, I had my older brother, um, but I was too long, too young to tag along. You know what I mean? So I would just hang out with my mom, and I think um, I saw some value in it because I would bake cookies and brownies and portion them in sandwich bags and sell them in my street. Um, so I realized when I was a little kid, I could, you know, make a little bit of money and yeah. spend cash. <laughs> That's and, great. And, you know, everybody loves cookies. So, you know, I was like six, seven, eight. You know what I mean? So it just, I just kept cooking uh, as I got older. And <clears throat> I never really thought I'd choose it as a career choice. Um, I didn't know there was options there. But when I got, uh, I think it kind of more became a possibility or maybe just an idea I was entertaining in high school. Because uh, I used to watch a show called The Great Chefs of the World on the Discovery Channel. And being a young skateboarder back then, I used to watch a lot of skate videos where people were skating in different parts of the world. Spain, Japan, Brazil, you know, it was neat seeing pro skaters all over. And when I saw Great Chefs of the World, same thing, you know, professional chefs all over the world. So I was like, hey, that's kind of cool. But still, I didn't think I was going to do anything with food. 
So it wasn't until I got out of high school, um, I, I had to make a decision on what I was going to do. And I just said, all right, well, um, you know, I, I didn't do too good in high school academically because I wasn't applying myself. I'd rather skate and hang out and do other stuff. Um, but I had been cooking all my life. So I decided to just say, all right, I'll just, um, you know, go to see what this cooking school thing is about. And it turned out I really liked it. So I think a big part of this is obviously the culinary side of things, but um, the other half of this is indigenous heritage, Native American heritage. So can you tell us about your tribal affiliation and what you'd like our listeners to know about those tribes? Well, I'm, I'm White Mountain Apache on my mother's side. Um, being that we're matrilineal societies, I identify as White Mountain Apache. Uh, my, my late father is Navajo from the eastern side of the Navajo Nation in New Mexico. Uh, Crown Point, New Mexico is where my father was from. And so um, I grew up on both reservations. Um, the White Mountain Apache tribe is in northeastern Arizona, about like three and a half hours northeast of Phoenix. And Crown Point is in New Mexico. Um, two very different environments, um, but uh, still very much uh, culturally there and alive and thriving. Um, I think um, when people hear Apache, they kind of generalize it. Um, but there's many Apache bands. So I'm a part of the Western Apache group, which is um, the Western Apache group is in Arizona. And there's four different bands in the Western Apache group. It's uh, the Tonto Apaches, the Yavapai Apaches, the San Carlos Apaches, and us, the White Mountain Apache group. And so the Eastern Apache group is Chiricahua, Hickoria, Mescalero, um, those, those other groups of Apaches, and there's others that go down into Mexico too. Um, so that's, that's what um, wanted to, makes me distinct, or I wanted to um, show the difference is there's, Apaches aren't all the same. A lot of people tend to use kind of a common label or, or to generalize, like you say, so I think it's important for you to distinguish that it's not just Apache. There's so many different tribes and affiliations that, you know, you could be from, so I appreciate the, the clarification. Um, now, I think before we get too much deeper, um, and we just came off of our um, Hunt Fish Gather demonstration, so this is a two-part event. Today we've had a demonstration, you gave a presentation, and then tomorrow we'll have our, our big Hunt Fish Gather dinner. Mm -hmm. And part of that demonstration, you um, gave your definition of Native American cuisine. Um, and I really liked what you said, that cuisine is defined as for the people. Um, so could you talk a little bit about your definition of Native American cuisine and, and dig into that a little bit with us? My, my definition of Native American cuisine is um, it, it's still very much evolving. See, I, I'm, I've been cooking 20, 24, 25 years now. I'm 42 years old um, and I've been all over the world cooking and doing this kind of work. So when I say it's still evolving and I still like I feel I'm still at the beginning, um, I mean that there's still a lot more work to do. Um, I've in early on my 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 culinary training is definitely classically based, like uh, you know French cuisine, the cuisines of Europe, and learning all that stuff. Um, and this kind of goes back to that first question: being in culinary school and getting introduced to the world of um, professional cooking, it it, uh, it was really apparent right away that there was no mention of native peoples. Um, no, I never even heard of a native chef. All those shows I used to watch, I never saw a native chef. Um, so it, it kind of became apparent that there was a void there. But I knew growing up on the res, growing up on the res, both Navajo Nation and Apache land, that you know, 
everybody's grandma's a master chef, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody. And not only that, but just by being in contact with food and growing up on the res and in native communities, you hear food a part of so many different things from our creation stories to our legends, our clan system, our arts, you know, um, our arts and crafts. There's food imagery woven into it all. So when you just kind of stop and think about it, you can see food really woven into the fabric of our culture. So I felt after getting a certain amount of classical training in the beginning, um, see, I, I looked at professional cooking like kind of like a fine art. Uh, I, I knew that um, at least from the world that I came from in the, in the native world, it was like there was nothing fine dining ever. You know what I mean? It was just food for families and people. And so getting into classical cuisine, it was like I was going to a ballet school or martial arts school. You know what I mean? I might as well have done that, you know, or a music school. So, so it was so different. Mm -hmm. But food is so universal. But in the context that I went to school, it was so different. Um, so I really looked at it like, all right, well, um, if I was going to be a painter, I would learn the classics. If I was going to be an artist, I would learn the classics. If I was going to do this X, Y, and Z, all these other fine arts, I would learn the classics. So that's kind of what I decided to hone in on was the classical uh, framework. And <clears throat> so I got that kind of beginning. And then as I got into it, um, just realizing that there was no talk or mention about native foods. And when I would, when I would ask questions to other chefs um, about native foods, I was either met, met with uh, dismissive attitudes, um, just, just general I don't know answers, or I would be met with some like, you know, real kind of real ignorant remarks or even racist statements sometimes, you know. Um, so it just depended. So I think my, uh, over time, that early on, it taught me that um, the, the void is vast and it's really big. And when I got to a certain point where I decided I wanted to like specifically do native foods, it, um, it was a humbling experience because it, you see, my, my, my heart and mind and my goal was like wanting to work at like the French Laundry with Thomas Keller, you know what I mean? Or work at Danielle in New York with Daniel Ballou or go to any one of the American French, great American French chefs, because I was nearing that level. Um, the chefs I was working with had come from those kitchens. That well, it's like, my... and you're almost made to think that that's what you should aspire to be, you yeah. know? I think that that's the, the, the culinary role, especially when you go to a classically, mm -hmm. you know, trained culinary school, that's what you're supposed to aspire to. Yeah, exactly, and that's the mindset, you know? And not realizing how deep in the colonial belly I was, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like. In that mindset, the hierarchy, the traditions, the respect for all that kind of paradigm. And so like, um, but when I decided, all right, I've got this, this certain skill set and training from this real high-end place, I want to do native foods. And realizing that those, those hero chefs I had had almost nothing to offer. You know what I mean? Like they didn't know the information I needed to know if I was going to do native foods. If I true, I felt... I felt if I wanted to do something that was truly reflective of who we are, I would have to, you know, create it myself. Like, I, there was no one for me to look up to. There were some other chefs, but they were in different parts of Canada, the Northeast. I couldn't find very few in the Southwest um, that had, you know, I guess got to certain levels or whatever. But, and it became really apparent that <clears throat> the, the food, the, uh, the native food world was wide open. And this is like, you know, 2001, 2002, when I just made that decision. 
and so um, all that kind of uh, realization and the journey forward has always been brought me to the point where it, it, like today now all these years later my my definition of Native American cuisine is that it, it definitely needs to be reflective of your environment your landscape um, it definitely needs to be respectful of uh, traditions and cultural protocol um, and there's there's like a thin line I feel um, that we walk when we're when we're quote unquote showcasing native foods because there's such a thing as cultural intellectual property on reservations in the United States um, so like anything related to culture knowledge ancestral knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge like we call it now can be considered cultural intellectual property so I feel like my style of cooking is about um, I don't know, there's kind of two layers to it. I like the technical stuff. I like teaching that. That's real skill building and neat and cool, and it's, it's just so awesome. That's, that's what I got into it for as a young person. But I think as I've matured and seen a lot in my life and encountered loss and different things, um, I feel like it's more about um, health, skill building, and relationship building. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a clear definition of Native American <laughs> cuisine. Well, I think it's the, it's, it's the long and short way of saying, you know, and, and correct me if this is inaccurate, but when you, like you said, when you decided that you really wanted to not focus on the high end, the fancy, the Western types of food and, and cuisines and focus more on the Native American cuisines, there, you, you, you didn't have a clear definition of what that meant. You had your experiences yeah. and what you grew up on and what you experienced, what your families, your, your you know, community experienced. But as far as what's out there, it wasn't out there. Yeah. And you, you had to build that for yourself. You had to define it for yourself. That, that is very right. And it's, it's been, you know, in all truth, it's been scary. Mm -hmm. It's been a, you know, it's been, it's been very daunting. It's been very intimidating. Uh, it's been very, um, um, like, uh, how do you, like, as one native person from the res, trying to say I'm trying to uh, create or define a cuisine, you know, that, that even that's a big statement for, for a person to say I'm trying to define a style. And then you've got all these other world cuisines, right, mm -hmm. that are, you know, cataloged and historically documented and evolved and well-known. It's like, okay, so what's Apache cuisine like? I get that question all the time. And I don't know how to answer it sometimes. I'm like, oh, well, you got to come to the res to find out. And it's more every day than you think, but it's much more, too, at the same mm -hmm. time. It's crazy. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point there, which is, you know, you don't want to feel like, or, or you don't want, I guess, others to feel like you are trying to define mm -hmm. the cuisine of Native Americans. And I think the, the hard thing about using the term Native American or Indigenous is that it's so broad. Yeah. So it's almost hard to even just define Native American cuisine because... Like you said, you know, you're Apache, you're mm -hmm. White Mountain Apache, mm -hmm. so you know White Mountain Apache, but you, you don't want to feel it, or you don't want others to think that you're trying to define it for people that are from a different tribe who yeah. might experience food in a completely different way, have completely different ingredients. So yeah. um, I imagine it's a really difficult and, and like you said, kind of scary uh, experience. It is, and I really appreciate that you, that you spot that out, you point that out, because that is very true. Like, <clears throat> I, I, I know, like, I don't even want to, like, 
I don't even want to say I'm defining what Western Apache or White Mountain cuisine is like. You know what I mean? Because I'm not trying to speak for any of my community members or counterparts in my community. I feel like I'm I'm just a part of the food system. I've decided to be be in my community and doing the work, but I'm not completely representative of that. You know what I mean? There's different layers to it. And the same thing is true. Like, I wouldn't appreciate someone coming in and trying to say they know all about the cooking and food of my community. You know what I mean? That's from the other side of the country. So it there's there's that's kind of like um, um, it, it's so early in this, at least from what I've seen in the past couple couple decades, is that the food trends come and go and we're still like setting roots. I feel like over the past uh, those many years, um, I've come to some of those realizations that I, I don't speak for other tribes. Um, I can't speak for other tribes. I can only kind of speak to my own experience. So my cooking style is kind of both very personal and kind of cautious, but also really highlighting food facts, mm -hmm. you know? But I also think, you know, it's, it's equally important to point out that, um, you know, as you said, that this idea of Native American cuisine and trying to bring it more to the forefront of people experiencing new foods, you know, no, you don't speak for all, but at least you're speaking, at least you're trying, mm -hmm. you know, you're putting forth that effort. And I think, you know, it's a step. And, you know, hopefully the more people experience it, the more it's, it's put in front of people, you know, hopefully it gets expanded and, you know, that definition is expanded. Yeah. And, and I like what you said too, because like, <clears throat> I think, I think uh, I'm not trying to speak for all, but I'm speaking for indigeneity. You know what I mean? Like, there's an experience of being indigenous and the experience of being indigenous has commonalities across the board because of the common forces that are against us. You know what I mean? So when I'm, when I'm talking about food history, food facts, behavioral health or culinary arts, um, I hope that listeners or viewers or participants or staff can say, oh yeah, that, that is true in my life. And we are, you know, we have this in common, make their own conclusions. You know what I mean? I feel like that's a more intelligent um, way for people and practitioners to take ownership over, over the truth. You know what I mean? So, and we've talked a bit about how, you know, what you're doing, it's very personal. Um, you, you mentioned bringing in like family um, influences and, and influences from being on the reservation. Um, but kind of in general, what is it that inspires you about using traditional ingredients or incorporating traditional practices or recipes um, in your food, in your cooking, in the work that you do? What inspires me, I think, it's changed over the years. Um, early on, I was really driven by, you know, my, my hero chefs out there. You know what I mean? Some I've had the opportunity to meet and some I haven't. Um, then I think what has really been in, in inspiring for me has been... Um, getting sober, you know, like seriously, like entering into recovery and living a life of sobriety. And I didn't know when I was growing up that um, I was trying to fit into a world that I, I wasn't a part of, you know what I mean? The fine dining world, the colonial construct, American culture, I was doing my best to fit in and be like that. And it was causing me damages. And, you know, I became an addict and alcoholic along the way. Fortunately, it was, you know, functional in all this work I've done. But when I got, when I turned 30, my dad passed away from cancer. And that was a huge loss. 
And then when that next year, that following year, within a year, it's when I got clean. And so looking back on the time before sobriety, the chaos of youth and the insecurity and all that stuff that goes on when you're young and then getting clean and then walking through the doorway of maturity or whatever you want to call it and seeing things different with a different lens of appreciation. It's like I almost died, you know, I could have died. You know what I mean? And so I feel like what motivates me and inspires me about the traditional ecological knowledge, the ceremonial practices, the food ways, is that it, it is so powerful. Like it is, um, it is place-based. What's, uh, what's special for me might not be special for another place, um, but it does have some life-saving qualities. You know what I mean? Not just from addiction, but it's a very powerful tool for doing the trauma work that is so badly needed um, across Native communities um, to help find liberation in a spiritual sense um, and to, to, in a really tactile way, build a ladder out of oppression, I guess. You know what I mean? Because it, it's, um, that's what inspires me. I think if I can get more people cooking, get people excited about food, maybe I'm, I used to say I want to build an army of chefs. Now I just want people to cook. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's been powerful to me not, not as a person in recovery, as a community member, as a professional, and uh, most importantly, as a parent, you know? Yeah, so that's kind of what inspires me around those, those type of practices. It's very powerful. Mm -hmm. So at what point in this journey, so you, you graduate culinary school. Um, at some point, you start the Native American Culinary Association. Um, at what point in your journey did that get started? And um, just a little bit of background. So an, it's a network of Native chefs dedicated to research, refinement, and development of Native American cuisine. So at what point in your journey did you um, decide to start this association? And can you tell us a little bit more about the work that they do? I think the idea for NACA came early on, like soon as I got into culinary school. Um, soon as I asked my instructors if they knew anything about Native cuisine, and I was met with these dismissive answers and kind of like smirks, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Um, um, it was kind of like, you know, I was a rowdy kid, so I was like, man, F you, you know, whatever. And that, that angsty attitude was like, you know, well, if you don't know, somebody else has got to know. I know my grandma knows, right? Like, I know my grandma tells stories when she cooks. And so, like, I just, I just kind of just, I just knew. See, I was lucky enough to travel around to different parts of the United States with my dad, who was a singer and songwriter. And so this is like the earlier days of Indian gaming before, like, the really massive Native casinos we have today. But we did get to travel, and my dad would perform in different parts of the country. And I would see, you know, places. That, um, my tribe has a small casino and hotel, and uh, we had gone to others. And I saw Native cooks in, you know, their hats or whatever. I didn't see any chefs, but I knew they were out there working, you know. Um, so I just figured, like in the beginning, we talked about it being a fine art. And to me, uh, like, I would hear... When I was in school, I would hear the chefs saying, like, master chefs or whatever, you know what I mean? And the only other place in, when I was 18 I had heard, you know, the word master was, like, master painter, master dancer, master carpenter, you know, kung fu master, <laughs> you know? So I was like, to me, in my, the, way I, the way I thought about that is, like, it's going to take a lifetime, you know? It's going to take a lifetime. So, you know, being a young Wu-Tang head, I was like, all right, I'm going to sharpen my sword and... <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm going to commit, I'm going to give my life to this, yeah. you know, 
not knowing what that would meant, not knowing what that would mean, not knowing what it would cost, you know? And so I was like, all right, if I'm going to do that, this is cool as hell. I'm going to go for it. And maybe in 10 years, maybe in 15 years, maybe in 20 years, I'll be a chef myself and I can train other natives. So that was kind of the, the foresight. And um, that's just kind of how it started. Then I, that was like 1999, 1998, 1999. And then in 2003, 2002 and 2003 is when I had the first, um, the first conference gathering. NACA has never been a, like a formal 501c3 or a nonprofit organization. Um, I've never, I've never really wanted it to exist in that world. Um, cause, cause, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, like the themes of colonial violence we're talking about today, having to qualify for resources, trying to like uh, be, not trying to like clout chase, you know what I mean? Yeah. I really wanted the work to be organic, you know what I mean? To like come from people that believed in it. So the early conferences we did, we did do fundraising, we did do phys get fiscal sponsors and whatnot, um, because you know, it, that's what it takes to do large gatherings. but. Um, it was really, really developed in the spirit of ceremony because I had grown up in my life doing ceremonies and, you know, people come because they believe in it. They want to be there and it's there for their personal health or well-being or whatever purpose they're there. And people come from far away for ceremonies. And I felt like that was just a native tradition, right? That's just how we do things. So NACO began in that sense, in the spirit of ceremony, that we're going to have these food gatherings, we're going to put the word out, and we'll see who comes. Um, this food thing is interdisciplinary, so we're gonna, you know, do the call for proposals and do the selection process. And that's what we did. Um, we held our first gathering in 2003. Um, we wouldn't do another gathering until 2012. And then we did one in 2013, 14, 15, and I think 16. And it, it grew bigger and bigger. And um, the work is really grassroots. Uh, I don't, um, I don't think it's, uh, there's not, you couldn't say like, what's your head count of members? Because mm -hmm. they're, they're out there. They've been impacted. We did a lot of foundational work in America with building a culture. Um, but in 2016, we kind of pulled back, or at least I pulled back from it, um, just because to me it was getting too commercial. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was too commercial, too big, and too generic in a sense. And I didn't, I was uncomfortable with being like a spokesperson or the, the one or that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm very aware of like the saviorism complex and that's not what it's about. Sure. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're hoping to do something in the next couple of years though. This year, maybe next. Great. Yeah. yeah. So we'll see. It'll be kind of underground advertising. Who knows? <laughs> maybe not. So while we're on that subject, kind of of research outreach, um, let's switch gears a bit and talk about why you're in Missouri this week. Um, so you're here as our featured guest chef for 2022's Hunt Fish Gather program, um, which is presented by the Catherine M. Booter Center for American Indian Studies here at Washington University and Missouri Humanities. So as the, the featured chef for this year, tell us about this year's program. Um, so as we kind of said earlier today, we did a public program um, presentation and demonstration, a cooking demonstration, then tomorrow we've got a more um, kind of formalized dinner. And uh, so talk about the menu you've, you've created, your goals in creating this menu, um, 
and also just what were some of your favorite ingredients that you incorporated? Um, let's talk a bit about that. The whole purpose of being out here this year is to, uh, this is like the first gathering since COVID, right? Yeah, I and, think so. And so. It's been a couple of years. It's been a couple of years and I was a part of the first couple ones that we did. Um, so I felt like um, um, Booter Center and Wash U were, were really um, um, innovative in being some of the first to, to do this in, in large academia. And to, uh, because back then they were um, adding some of the dishes into the, the feeding menus here at the, the university. Um, so the menu we put together this year, we wanted to focus on some of the foods of the, the area. Um, <clears throat> Eric has been, Eric Pinto has been very um, uh, aggressively helping to help source different ingredients, uh, getting different things for tea and adding his cultural input, which is really important. Um, it's really important to have that kind of uh, um, local network support. So we built a menu that will hopefully kind of um, spark some ideas or questions. Uh, we're doing a couple action stations. Uh, it's not a plated dinner um, where it's course by course. Uh, it's kind of more open, more casual, more engaging, we hope. So we'll have uh, one action station where they're going to be sauteing and serving two small dishes. Uh, one is a three sisters mix of corn, beans, and squash, and it'll be very much like the one I did for the demo today. Um, and then they're going to do like a, another dish of roasted quinoa and, um, or, I mean, a roasted butternut squash and quinoa, um, just small vegetable tastings. So there'll be staff there sauteing and so people can see and come and get. Uh, another action station or a self-serve is a, a drink station where we'll have an assortment of native teas. Um, which some, uh, I brought a couple from my area. Eric has the, um, the sumac, the holly, uh, the other one was the, what was the other one? Uh, gosh, I can't remember it. Yeah, the chai, and then there's a spice bush, spice bush, yeah. Then I brought some green thread from the southwest with me, um, which everyone calls, you know, either Navajo tea, Apache tea, Zuni tea, Hopi tea. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's real common in the southwest. Then we'll do a small buffet line where we'll have um, a, uh, a native, uh, native fish stew where we'll use some uh, cat, local catfish, some mussels, some crayfish, just kind of things that tribes in the area used. And so that'll be one, one dish. We'll do some braised bison with root veg and uh, greens. And then we'll do another with uh, quail and a little bit more quinoa. We were gonna use lamb's quarters um, but it's uh, out of season, so we decided to use its cousin, the quinoa. So uh, that's what we'll do. The final action station and the sweet side of it is uh, not, not necessarily like desserts, but it'll be roasted fruits, uh, roasted fall fruits like um, apricots, plums, some preserved fruits. Uh, um, Eric, I think he got some pawpaws and a couple other items that he's processed and harvested. I've heard all about the pawpaws. Yeah, <laughs> Lots so, of pawpaw -paw harvesting. Yeah, <laughs> so, we're going to use a mix of that, and we'll just do some, um, some uh, um, native like syrups. Um, so uh, honey, agave, uh, maple, you know what I mean? Yeah. And just roasted fruits, hot and cold, um, so people can come and just walk through and get something sweet. Not sugary sweet, but like, you know, good sweet. Yeah, that's great. I'm <laughs> yeah. so excited. I'm mm -hmm. so excited. <laughs> um, so kind of like you said, this it's not your first time being involved with Hunt Fish Gather. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you were here for the first one. I think you've maybe been to one, maybe one or two since. Um, but what is it about Hunt Fish Gather 
that has you willing to return? What is it about the program? Having the opportunity to come to a sub supportive environment is important for anyone. And every time I've been in, in included, involved with the Buddha Center and Bon Appetit Food Services, they've always been highly supportive and engaging and um, involved in the process. Um, sometimes it can be difficult where you're carrying the whole workload and trying to do everything. Um, I think uh, what, what keeps bringing me back is that the Buddha Center has been um, always making it a priority and wanting me to be able to creating the opportunity for me to talk with and engage students and the Native community locally um, and get that message out. Um, indigeneity and the struggle of uh, living it out changes from region to region. So this being in St. Louis, um, it's a metropolitan environment, one of the big cities in America. Um, I feel like um, speaking on Native foods and advocating for the Native, the micro-Native communities that are around is important. Um, I know for me and my perspective, I always feel um, always that feeling of alienation as a Native person goes away or gets alleviated when I get to um, hear other people doing the work uh, locally or they can validate my experience. So that's what I hope I can do. And Booter Center and WashU um, really support that. I think it's important. Like with the demo we did, you know, being able to have an opportunity to, to speak on what I spoke on and share and do that kind of thing, that's really important to me. Um, so that's, I think, is what keeps coming back and it's just a nice part of the country. Well, we appreciate you being here. Um, so kind of as we start to wrap up our conversation, um, we mentioned earlier, so Missouri Humanities is doing our signature series this year uh, around the theme of Eat, Think, and Be Merry, Missouri's Foodways and Edible History. So our goal this year is to explore how food connects us to um, one another, to our collective past, and to the world around us, and to examine the role of food through a humanities lens. Um, with that said, why, in your opinion, is it important for all of us, regardless of our ethnicity, our heritage, to engage with indigenous or traditional foodways? And what are some ways people can do that, um, both including and aside from actually experiencing the food? Uh, foods really tell the truth. You can tell, you can, you can retell, you can dispel the master narrative of America through foodways. Mm -hmm. You can tell a really accurate story of brutality, oppression, and violence with food. You can tell it. You can, you know, you unravel this knot when you start to travel and study the cultivars. You study the food traditions. You ask questions like, why doesn't this exist anymore? You ask questions like, why are there no recipes? You ask questions like, who knows how to gather this? You know, you ask questions like, what is left? And then you really get the, some really deep answers and meaningful conclusions. Um, negative and positive and so food is a really honest way of engaging with life I feel and it, it takes a minute to like stop and listen to it um, you can have these aha moments in the beginning and it kind of fades but you really kind of got to stay vigilant about learning and studying the foods um, I think really great ways to that are everyday easy ways to find out more is just like look up or Google like indigenous foods of the Americas or indigenous, cult, indigenous cultivars of the Americas. Um, look up indigenous science or indigenous food science. Um, you can really um, find, you know, wormholes that'll take you, you know, through time and space. Um, 
So, and then also recognize that when you go to the grocery store, you know, 70, 75% of the foods there are indigenous cultivars. Tomato, squash, chili, chocolate, you know, different types of nuts and berries and seeds. And so there's, it's just about us doing the work as everyday people to, you know, trust and understand that the foods are communicating a story. And um, it's important that we, you know, listen to that and, you know, re-clarify and, and tell those stories, you know, not, not just in, in academic professional circles, but at home, you know what I mean? And I feel like food has, um, uh, it's such a human experience. It's such, it's, it's so driven by human experience and it's very intimate. Um, that how we perceive food, that it's, it's a great opportunity. It is edible education. It is edible history. And when you're able to open your mind to, to these type of food facts, it, it can be life-changing if you want it to be. Any parting thoughts um, about the work you do, about indigenous heritage, indigenous cuisine, um, anything you'd like to share? Thank, first of all, thank you for your time. And I hope that um, there's a food tradition in your life, whether it's uh, indigenous or not, that you can bring back or revitalize and talk about. Um, food is a great way to teach um, children and adults, um, but we can, really, we can really make a positive impact in our everyday lives by just turning off the TV, putting down our phones, and cooking together and eating and laughing together. Um, I, I feel like even though I'm a chef, that still is um, not as important as being able to cook with and eat with my eat with my children, um, making time for that. Uh, any possible young chefs or chefs listening, you know, take take time out and try to create work balance. I know it's tough, but work life balance is is critical. And our call, our our hospitality industry is changing a little bit. Um, it's not as fast as we need it to, but there's more discussion about um, getting rid of the toxic work culture that exists in professional kitchens. Um, I hope that we can uh, set the stage for positive changes in our, in our culinary world in the next 10, 15, 20 years um, and know that it is possible. Um, and it just takes people to, to have the courage and speak on it and call it out when they see you know, injustices and toxic culture at work. Um, and food is for everyone. You know, mm -hmm. this, this native food thing is, is such an amazing phenomenon and cultural occurrence. And, and, you know, you can really learn a lot by following the foods and cooking with your kids, um, taming the ego, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? <laughs> taming the ego and letting the heart speak and listen is really important. Um, so there's a lot of themes that I want to say is, is to have fun with it, season your food with humor, you know what I mean? <laughs> Laugh yeah. and talk and engage. That's more meaningful than getting a recipe correct, quote unquote. You know what I mean? Um, the experience is 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 what will last a lifetime, I think, and it'll be what you draw from and what your kids draw from. Um, so look at food differently and have fun with it. It's 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 pretty cool. Well, chef, thank you so much for, um, like we said, taking time out of this busy week and. Um, talking with us. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. I've learned a lot and I hope our listeners have too. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for your time. I appreciate being here. 
Caitlin, that was such a captivating conversation. I love that Chef Nephi touches on food being universal, but also being woven into the fabric of his culture and traditions. And I just really appreciated hearing about the path he took from focusing on classically trained cuisine to creating and highlighting Native American cuisine. The time really flew by talking with Nephi. The fact that he approaches food not just from a culinary standpoint, but that he links food to mental, physical, and behavioral health, especially for those in indigenous communities. It's really inspirational, and I hope our listeners learned a lot from him. I know I learned a lot. It was very humbling to hear Chef Nephi's thoughts on healing through food and him openly talking about his own path to sobriety and how he uses his personal experience to support other Native people who are recovering from addiction. He brings so much knowledge, passion, and civility to the work he does. I agree. Thank you again to Chef Nephi Craig for a wonderful experience, both during the Hunt Fish Gather program and during our conversation. And of course, thank you to all of you for listening. And I'm sad to say this will be our last regular episode of this season. Our next episode will reflect on our year and introduce our 2023 signature series theme. So you definitely won't want to miss it. We are so excited to discuss all the wonderful themes from this year and look to 2023's programming. Thank you everyone for joining us on this Eat, Think, and Be Merry journey. We look forward to reflecting with you when we release our wrap-up episode next month. As always, to learn more about our 2022 signature series, visit mohumanities.org backslash food. This podcast is brought to you by Missouri Humanities. Please help us share these stories by sharing episodes with friends, family, and on your social media platforms. If you're listening on an app, don't forget to follow us and leave a review. I'm Lisa Carrico here with Caitlin Yeager, and we hope you stay connected with us as we wrap up our year and look forward to 2023 when I'm sure our paths will cross again. Be sure to follow us on social media at Mo Humanities or sign up to receive our email updates on our website, mohumanities.org. Cheers, everyone. Until next time. Mm-hmm.